Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this is an open and, well, it doesn't get shut for quite a while episode with Reed Farrell Coleman. Uh, you get a couple of people who like to talk together, especially when one of them is as entertaining as Reed and uh, tend to go over the 20 minute threshold pretty easily. Uh, I do think you'll enjoy every single minute. Uh, I certainly did. And uh, you know, most of you may know Reed as one of the uh, authors that took over for Robert Parker uh, after he passed. He wrote the Jesse Stone series uh, for uh, several books, but he also has a number of his own series, including the Mo Prager series. Uh, and he co-authored, I, I found out, with uh, with Ken Bruin. So uh, a lot of cool stuff to find out. And uh, Reed puts it in... Uh, very read read terms, so you should enjoy that as well. But before we get to that, uh, I want to let you know that uh, Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a medium-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. Uh, now let's uh, let's dive into our conversation with Reed Farrell Coleman. Well, hey Reed, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Frank. Hey, uh, actually, uh, I, I think the reason I asked you on the show was that we uh, met, I believe, for the first time in uh, Dallas at the BoucherCon uh, conference last year. Yeah, I wish you wouldn't to give that secret away, Frank. <laughs> you know, what's funny is the mystery community is such a tight community, but you realize how many thousands of people it, there are. So people have heard of each other, but a lot of times you haven't met the other person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly had heard of you. And one of, one of the reasons I wanted to uh, bump into you and, and ask you to come on the show was that everyone else spoke so highly of you. And so, you know, when that diverse of a group is all saying pretty much the same thing, you, you tend to trust it. Well, you know, you don't know how much it costs me to pay all those people to say those <laughs> nice things about me. Well, you can afford it. <laughs> well, not anymore. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you something else that that I realized after talking to you and checking, uh, you know, into you a little bit more, was I thought I was pretty well read in the crime fiction arena, and, and you know, I mean, if you start going down the list of who's who, and even second tier authors like myself, people in my, at my level, I've read a bunch of them, but I realized there's a huge hole in my reading. Uh, knowledge when it comes to uh reed farrell coleman i don't i don't know that i've explored any of your work yet so i was super excited about the opportunity to to kind of get to know you uh before diving into your work and for those readers who maybe are in the same boat those two or three other people in the world um they, they can discover that as well as we're talking hopefully Great. You're, you know, this way you still like me. If you had read my books first, you know, you'd probably say, <laughs> Reed, can we cancel this interview? <laughs> well, I'll tell you that the, I, I hardly believe they're monolithic in tone. And when, when you, when I see there's like 30 of them, uh, you know, I imagine there's a few different voices there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's one of the things I pride myself on is getting dropped from so many publishers, I have to keep writing different series. 
Well, you know, 30s a lot. I mean, people call Eric Beatner the hardest working guy in, in, in crime fiction, and he's very prolific. Um, people are surprised sometimes to, to see him in my upper 20s and in, in releases. Uh, but uh, 30, uh, that's a big number. So, yeah. yeah. You, know what I, you know what I always say? I'm, I'm about at 31, and eventually I'll get it right. <laughs> well, it may be possible that some people know you because of your interaction with uh, Robert Parker's estate and writing the Jesse Stone novels. Maybe we could start there because that's kind of a unique sort of setup when you're writing in a character that was not only created, but popularized by, by someone else. What was that experience like? You know, I, I, first of all, it was a great experience. Uh, a little frightening, kind of like, uh, you know, walking the wire without a net because, you know, it's not like taking over some unknown person series. Talk about prolific. I mean, Parker wrote over 70, between 70 and 100 books in his that lifetime. Many? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, see, he also worked on the theory that eventually he'd get it right. <laughs> um, no, he wrote an, an enormous amount of books and. Uh, what I always loved is when his fans would complain about how dare I take over the series, <laughs> I, I would tell them, just remember, he wrote two Raymond Chandler novels. Oh, so, did he? Yeah, yes. So, you know, that usually quieted the fans wow. a bit. It's a little but, bit of a full circle sort of thing happening there. Yeah. There. I mean, I never felt funny doing it because he, he did it. And, I, I, and actually, I had met Robert Parker once. So I, I was fortunate enough to have met him. Very wow. nice man. Really nice man. Glass of scotch in his hand. He had no idea who I was, but he was lovely and polite to me. So uh, that, des that, that describes probably 99% of that old guard right there. Yeah, I have not run into any old school people uh, who were anything less than gracious to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I met uh, probably my favorite crime fiction author, uh, Lawrence Block, down in St. Petersburg at my first VoucherCon. And here's a guy that, you know, how many times are people come up and tell him, you know, hey, I love your books. And, you know, and, and he was just and I stopped him in the hallway. <laughs> he was probably trying to get to the bathroom or something. And, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he gave me my five seconds and was very gracious in accepting the fact that, you know, his books meant a lot to me. And I'm, I'm just, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. Well, if this means anything to you, Larry was a big influence on me, too. And, I, and I've told him that, and he has yawned. <laughs> but but here, here, let me, you know, it's funny that we've, we've hit on Larry Block and you've asked me about the Parker estate because let me tell you a funny story connecting both. So the first time I, I wrote, uh, the first Jesse Stone book I wrote was called Blind Spot. And I had the arc for it, and I was carrying it around BEA at the Javits Center in Manhattan. And Larry Block stops me. I've known Larry for a very long time. Larry Block stops me. He looks at the arc of Blindspot and he says, well, how do you like doing that, Reed? And I said, Larry, it's been great. But to tell you the truth, I, I would feel much more qualified to do Scudder. And he touched his wrist to feel a pulse. And he said, not yet. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. And when was that? 
uh, about six, seven years ago. It was hysterical. <laughs> he, 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 I mean, Larry's has this like kind of dry sense of humor with a total poker face delivery, and we both yeah. laughed about that for a long time. It was very funny. That's a good. Uh, that's pretty quick witted. Yeah. So how I got the gig was, uh, I I thought I got the gig because after Bob died, his widow Joan went to Otto Penzler and said, we need to do a, a kind of a tribute book to Bob. And Otto put together a whole list of authors, Dennis Lehane and me and S.J. Roseanne and Lauren Esselman and Ace Atkins and a whole bunch of uh, authors to write about Bob, Spencer, and Boston. But of course, Otto told me, you have to write about Jesse Stone. So I read the Jesse Stone books. Um, I did a, an essay, and which was very well received. And then when I got asked to do this, I thought, oh, they'd read the book, they read the essay, and they thought, you know, he can do this. Of course, that wasn't how it happened at all. <laughs> because when I asked my editor, I said, so you read uh, my essay in pursuit, of, in pursuit of Spencer, and she said, what are you talking about? So uh, she, it, it turns out that when when they had the when Putnam and Michael Brandman, who did the books before me, decided to part ways, my editor Chris Peppy had always liked my work and knew I was available and asked. And it was pretty scary. I said yes before I realized how scary it would be. What was scary about it? Well, you know, think about. Uh, you know, you, you're being called like the next Babe Ruth or the next Hank Aaron or the next Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, you're stepping into some pretty big shoes. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know how to approach it. And this is a story I've told many times, but it's absolutely true. And I think Ace Atkins does an unbelievable job at Spencer because, you know, it's in first person. And you can't fake it when it's in first person. So I think it's amazing the job Ace does. But the Jesse Stone books are in third person. And I had to figure out, was I going to try and imitate Bob's voice? And I was talking to a writer friend named Tom Shrek. And he said, you know, I love, I love Parker. But I also love Elvis Presley. And Tom, and Tom is a crazy man. He, he's the type of guy who you say, what did Elvis play as an encore, you know, in Pittsburgh on April 12th? And he can tell you that stuff. And, and that was the him, second encore. <laughs> yes. He is that type of guy. You know, when fans are like crazy fans. So Tom said, you know, I've seen every great Elvis impersonator there is, but they're trapped because they're not Elvis. And you know that. And secondly, they can never do anything new and fresh. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when he said that to me, I said, okay, I'm going to keep, I'm going to, Jesse's going to be Jesse. The other characters are going to be the other characters, but I'm not going to try and imitate Parker because I'll always be seen like an Elvis impersonator. Not going to yeah. do that. Yeah, That was a good choice. I mean, if you think about it, what he's saying is that these impersonators can never evolve into something new. And, you know, what would have happened if Elvis would have stayed alive? I and mean, would we have gotten a, you know, a solo acoustic guitar tour out of him in his later life? You know, I mean, 
you'll never see an Elvis impersonator doing that. Right. Elvis do the Sex Pistols, you know. Elvis, does, <laughs> yeah. uh, Elvis in the Clash. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 it was a good choice. I mean, I didn't know it was a good choice at the time, but it was a good choice. It was really smart, and every one of those books ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. So, well, you gotta uh, like that. Yeah. Were there any restrictions that you dealt with that were uh, that got in the way, or were they just reasonable things that you were able to navigate past with no problem? <laughs> In six books, the estate only turned down one thing that I wanted to do. And wow. I would say that's a pretty good track record. That's a hell of a track record. Uh, not not yeah. a lot of meddling going on there. No, you know, sometimes it's you want people involved and sometimes you want them to stand back. And basically, I work better when people stand back mm -hmm. and, they, and they stood back. And I had the real luxury of having Chris Pepe who had been Bob's editor for decades, uh -huh. be my editor. So it was like having Bob there, mm -hmm. right? And that helped a tremendous amount because I could run stuff by her. Yeah, I, you know, I, I interviewed Robin Bursell a few episodes ago, and, um, you know, she does uh, work uh, with Clive Cussler, uh, who, who now has also sadly passed. Um, but hers was you know, it was more of a collaboration, albeit, you know, it was kind of secretive what the exact inner workings of that were. Uh, whereas you're dealing with, you know, you're, you're doing this kind of on your own, but you're still kind of collaborating. It's an interesting uh, sort of distinction. And I've done both. I've, I've written not, not two novels with other people. Mm -hmm. And one, uh, the famous, you know, uh, award-winning Irish author, Ken Bruin. Mm-hmm. And one with uh, a New York City detective named John Rowe. Uh, so I have done collaboration with, mm -hmm. let's say, the late Bob Parker, uh, more with his estate and his editor and his agent. And I have done collaboration with the you know living authors. Much easier with dead authors. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've done. Uh, I've collaborated with five different authors on. I, uh, almost half of the books I've written, it, I think, is the number now, and frequently get asked, you know, how 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 does that work? How do you you know do that? And you know, answer is always, you know, the way that we do it. I mean, it's going to be different for every every pair of authors. How did you and Ken Bruin uh, handle writing a book together? Funny you should ask that, Frank. <laughs> I mean, it's really it was that was the hardest collaboration, not because Ken and I didn't get along but because of the way he chose to do it. And, and I think you'll, you'll confess that when you do a con collaboration, one of the authors has to kind of be the boss because there are decisions that have to be made that if there's only two of you, it can't be democratic. Somebody has to be the, la the final voice. I actually haven't had that experience, uh, strangely enough. It's always come down to, it's been very much a, a series of compromises, but ultimately a decision has to be made. And, you know, I suppose the person who wanted to do it one way and that's the way you go ends up being the boss in that scenario. Yeah. Well, I, Ken was the boss on Tower because, you know, he was the senior person he was more acclaimed um, and I trusted him and on mm -hmm. uh, on Bronx Requiem I was the kind of the decision maker mm -hmm. so maybe decision maker is a better phrase than the boss so so Ken 
Ken asks me to do this book, and of course, I'm absolutely over the moon. It's like 2004, 2005, absolutely over the moon. And, and Ken Bruin, when he would send me emails, they would be the length of a football field. I mean, <laughs> you know, you could just scroll and scroll and scroll. The, the minute he asked me, I stopped getting emails from him. So, and then I would email him, Ken, when are we, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? So six months later... I get an email with, that says, have at it, bro, with an attachment. He had written half the book <laughs> <laughs> and sent it to me. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious, man. Yeah. So then I had to how figure out how to, do, how to do my half of the book. And I would write to him and say, Ken, how are we going to do this? And I would get no answer. So it was like the total Zen one hand clapping thing, you know, <laughs> it was like, I can, how am I doing this? So it took me a year to write the second half of the book, but you know, it was a great test and a great learning experience for me. So, um, this book has skyrocketed to the, uh, very near the top of my to be read list, uh, simply because I do I do like Ken Baroon quite a bit, um, and and I wanted to start reading some of your work, and so I figured that's a perfect place to start, even though it's probably very atypical of of your of your work, or or, or would it be? It it is atypical of my work. I mean, not of not of the themes of the darkness, but it's it's atypical writing style. Because although, like I said, I didn't try to match Ken's style, I had to be close enough to it so that it wasn't quite jarring for readers. So uh, Tower is available in used copies or I think open road electronically. Well, uh, what was the format then when you said you got half a book? Did, did, was it two oh, third person oh, formats that oh, you did? Oh, or so was it a jumble? First, or? It was kind of first person uh, parallel narratives mm -hmm. and where the, the, two main, the two main protagonists would be together, grow apart, come back together, grow apart, come back together. And I had to use his timeline, the characters he had established, and the ending he had established. So it was a really interesting and interesting here. People should read as almost impossible <laughs> task. <laughs> That's that's interesting. In the in in many of the collaborations I did, especially early on, kind of mirrored that a little bit. But we did it simultaneously. So I'd write a chapter in the first person with the character I was writing, and then send that to the other author. They'd write their next chapter. So we were able to make small corrections, course corrections, and you know continuity fixes and these sorts of things uh, right away. Or if one of the characters that they created had to be in one of the scenes I was writing, you know, character corrections or whatever needed to happen. I can't imagine how difficult it would have been to get half a book and have it to go oh, and plug collaborate it in. with Ken sometime. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a, I don't know. It sounds like you have post traumatic stress over it. Yeah, no, no, I, I still get twitchy when I when I see the word tower in anything. I get really twitchy, even if it's on an apartment building. Um, so uh, yeah, it is kind of had PTSD, but it was, it, like I said, it was a great learning experience. And when some a great author asks you, oh, of course, to, yeah. you, you got to do it. You got to um, do it. I want to swing back around to Jesse Stone real quick. And then sure. I want to talk about your, your other series because there's almost a half dozen of them here. But uh, 
uh, like uh, a lot of different uh, popular series, Jesse Stone was adapted for television and Tom Selleck played the main character. I was just curious uh, how you felt about that series. Did it uh, stay close to the books or did it range pretty widely from them? Well, I wouldn't say range widely from them, but here's a unique situation. When Bob died, a gentleman named Michael Brandman took over. Michael Brandman writes the scripts and is a producer of the Jesse Stone movies. So Michael does vary from the books and from the original. He certainly varies from my books, and he does vary from Bob's books in that he... How, do, how should I put it? He's kind of, and I don't mean this as an insult, but he cozified Jesse a little bit. He didn't turn him into Jessica Fletcher, but he uh, has a dog, and then he had a cat. You know, you know. So it it was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose to kind of ignore the television side of things and try to stick to the original thematic and um, spirit of the. Mm-hmm first nine books which bob had written ah okay and i you know i meant to ask you when when lawrence block came up too um you mentioned scudder that was my entree into lawrence block my uh actually one of my co-authors now uh who i was friends with i've been friends with for a long time was like you've never heard of lawrence block you know you're you're obviously an idiot here read this you know (laughs) and of course i mean i i think Scudder is my favorite series of any crime fiction, and that's saying a lot given some of the great series that are uh, is that series series is I don't know. But uh, you know, I just read my first Bernie book of his oh like like a oh. year ago. Uh, Bernie Rodenbar. Yeah, 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 and that was what my friend Colin, who introduced me to Block, that was the series he liked. And but I went with the Scudder because I'm a darker person and and I, I dug that pretty well and of course the Keller books, um, but anyway, which series is your favorite? Scudder. I yeah. mean, it, it, it by the, I mean I like Larry's writing, but I love Scudder. In fact, mm-hmm. I always Scudder. Do you know who Philip Kerr is? Have oh, you yes. ever heard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bernie Gunther books. Mm-hmm. I've always said if you took Scudder and Bernie Gunther and put them together, you'd get Mo Prager, which is one of my best known series. Uh, so I love I, and my uh, Dance at the Slaughterhouse mm-hmm. is one of my you know ten favorite PI yeah. novels. That, uh, you know that's one of the things he does so well is titles too. I, I think his his titles are fantastic. They're very poetic and lyrical. Yeah, I mean, there, for a long time there were all five words. All the Scudder books had five word titles. Oh, you know, I never picked up on that. <laughs> Here I am yeah. calling it lyrical, and I'm not picking up on the rhythm of it. Um, but if you ever heard me play guitar, you'd believe that I have trouble with rhythm. So, well, um, <laughs> you've never heard me play anything, and there's a reason. <laughs> You live on Long Island, correct? I do, but I grew so, up in Brooklyn. Uh, in, in Block's books, New York is certainly, it, it's a character unto itself. It's not just a setting. Uh, would you say that's true in, in your books as well? Um, I, I mean, I think it's even more true in my books because, uh, Frank, where do you live? I live in Central Oregon near Bend. Or, uh, right oh, now. yeah. You know, my new publisher is Ashland, is in Ashland. So, uh, um, actually... Where I'm from in Brooklyn, I'm from Coney Island. And the thing about New York is it's so big and so varied and so full of so many ethnicities 
that you know that there's actually not one New York, there are a thousand New Yorks. And so while Scudder is, you know, Hell's Kitchen, like you get a really intense view of Manhattan and particularly Hell's Kitchen. You know, my books, if if you you don't get a sense of Coney Island from my books, you you know, I didn't something's wrong with you <laughs> or I really missed the boat. So yeah, setting is everything. Um my friend Peter Spiegelman says that setting is the soil in which you grow your narrative. Um, and I've always thought books I don't like, often it's because I feel like this book could be set anywhere and they just arbitrarily picked a place. And if that's true, to me, that's bad writing. I, I love that soil analogy. I think that that is very true. You always want to have a sense of place. In some, in some instances, it's richer than others. So uh, we've been talking about other people's books a lot or collaborations, but let's talk a little bit about uh, your solo work because there's a lot of it. I counted at least five different book series uh, on your website, and then there's some standalones as well. I'd like to touch on each of them. Uh, tell me about Joe Serpe, or is it Serpe? Serpe. Uh, Joe Serpe, he, he was written by an author named Tony Spinoza, who's me. Uh, I, I did that because there was a contract issue. I couldn't compete with myself, so I couldn't put a book out under my name at the same time that one of my Mo books was out. But I, I drove an, a home heating oil delivery truck for seven years on and off. And I thought it was a fascinating, you know, I think what people like about any reading is if they learn about something they don't know about. So it was interesting for me to set uh, two no crime novels in the world of like the oil business. And he, he is a retired cop, uh, kind of a retired disgraced cop whose brother died, his fireman brother died in 9-11, and is now his world has shrunk till he lives in a basement apartment and delivers home heating oil and gets involved, embroiled in, you know, some murders and scams. Uh, when did that book come out? Oh, The Hose Monkey and the Fourth Victim came out. Wait, I'll, let me turn around to my bookshelf. <laughs> and I'll tell you. Um, Are they organized um, by release date? <laughs> yeah, I have a bookshelf behind me in my office. That's all of the books I've been in and all of the books I've published. Uh, 2006 and 2007. So, uh, but, but Joe's only one of, like I mentioned, about four different series. How about Dylan Klein? Dylan Klein was basically my way to teach myself how to write fiction. I, I had never I never took a writing class in, in fiction. I never even read crime fiction. To me, crime fiction was always those cheesy books on my dad's nightstand with the lurid covers of half-naked women holding guns. Um, and so I never read crime fiction, and it, it just so happens I took a night class at Brooklyn College, and the only class that fit my schedule was American Detective Fiction. And I thought, because I had trained to be a poet. And so I took this class, and I was, by the third class, after we had read Farewell, My Lovely, The Continental Op, 
and uh, the Maltese Falcon that this is what I was going to do with my life, as insane as that is. And I quit my job with the permission of my wife, and I came up with a character and wrote three novels featuring a you know, kind of Bush League investigator named Dylan Klein. And what Dylan Klein was was really a way for me to teach myself how to do this. Well, it clearly worked. <laughs> uh, that's fascinating to me, though, that, that it was literally a college class that got you to change your, your Absolutely. Life. Changed my life. Wow. It absolutely changed my life. What school was that at? Brooklyn College. Uh, is that a four-year school? Oh, indeed it is. It's part of the City University of New York. Uh, well, they did their work well, where you're concerned. Um, <laughs> what, what about Gus Murphy, which is kind of a cool name? Uh, Gus Murphy is, uh, is it's funny. When I got the, the Jesse Stone gig, Putnam was smart enough to realize that no one works as long and as hard as I did or Ace Atkins uh, to do someone else's series alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they offered me to, to come up with a new series, and they asked me to pitch them some ideas. And Gus Murphy was actually the second idea I pitched them. And Gus is a retired Suffolk County, which is where I live, Suffolk County uh, policeman, uh, uniform only, never was a detective, who is one of these guys who's a happy-go-lucky guy, who's a family he loves. He thinks he understands how the universe works because he's gotten everything he's ever wanted. You know, a loving wife, a happy family, a nice house. And he thinks he's got it and he understands how everything works until his son dies suddenly of an, un an undiagnosed heart problem. And suddenly his whole world just falls apart. And, you know, a man who went from thinking he understood how everything works goes to a man who understands how nothing works. And uh, to, to just get through the days, he gets a job as a van driver at, the, at a rundown hotel out by MacArthur Airport, which is like Suffolk County's main airport. And his, his life... You know, he's evolving now from who he used to be into somebody he doesn't know. Well, that's pretty tragic. Death is hard enough to deal with when you know it's coming, you know, when people have a sickness or even short-term, you know, chance to prepare. But when it hits you suddenly like that, I think that, that really knocks people for a loop. Yes. And, you know, the, the old saying is you never want to bury your child. Right. So, yeah. And so it is that tragedy which recreates Gus's world. And the, the books, all, all of my books, I mean, Joseph Wambaugh once said famously that it's not how the detective works on the case, but how the case works on the detective. And with Gus, it's not how Gus works on the world, it's how the world works on Gus. So you not only watch him deal with a case he gets involved with, but it's how he's recreating himself and putting himself back together. It's as if Humpty Dumpty had the pieces and the glue and could put himself together. But you're still going to see the cracks and you're still going to see yes. the scars. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, we're three for three on the uh, series so far being fairly dark. <laughs> Let's go for Gulliver Dowd and tell me if oh, uh, we're four the, for the, four. 
let's go darker, darker. <laughs> Gulliver Dowd uh, is a character I created in short stories. In fact, the second short story I ever had published was a Gulliver Dowd short story. And Gulliver is a little person who's really handsome. And he finds he's very bitter about his good looks and his size. Uh, he, he feels like God's cruelest joke. And I was approached by a Canadian publishing company to do a series uh, for people who are late to reading, late to literacy. You know, they like to read mysteries too, but not at a high level because they're late to literacy. So Gulliver, although I had created him many years before, was a character who was used for short novels, sorry about the short pun, short novels for people who are late to literacy to read and still enjoy an adult novel. Uh, and the backstory with Gulliver is he was adopted and his sister, an African-American woman, is are adopted, and she is killed on the job as a New York City uniform police officer. And Gulliver is driven to always find out who it was who killed her. So that's the always the subplot to all the books. I interviewed uh, Brenda Chapman a few weeks ago, and, and I think she uh, has contributed to that same, uh, might even be the same publisher, but that whole idea of of uh, books written with adult content, but for, uh, you know, more or, or right. earlier, earlier reading skills or lower reading skills. But it was Is fun. That, it was a great challenge. You, what was challenging amazed. about it? Right. Well, what's challenging about it? You have to do, you have to follow the rules you tell your writing students, but you never follow, which are short declarative sentences, very few uh, multi-claused sentences, and no trisyllabic words and and a linear plot. So you have to make an interesting adult level crime fiction novel, but under those constraints. And it was really good. It makes you a better writer. It was really interesting to do. Which of those rules was the hardest for you? Short declarative sentences. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I think the three syllable one would be the toughest one where you'd catch yourself using words that you that you use all the time yes. but then realizing yeah. oh wait that's that's actually four syllables <laughs> yeah well, well what you you find out they're all difficult they're all actually all difficult but you you once you get into it you find yourself reining yourself in like you catch yourself doing it mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh by the by the second one i i kind of had it down uh the first one is based on the short story i wrote so it's still a little too high level. Uh, but by the second, third, and fourth, I had it down. So Mo Prager is your uh, probably best known of, of your solo work, and I think the one that has the most novels in it. Tell me about Mo. Mo is, you know how authors spend many years denying their characters are them? Oh, that's not me. Well, Mo is... Uh, as close a protagonist to who I am as I've ever written, uh, except he is my oldest brother's age. So he's about nine years older than I would be. Uh, so Mo has kind of my personality, except he's better looking than I am and much more brave, but not quite as intelligent. Um, 
<laughs> that's like the template for writers who, who represent themselves. Yes. <laughs> Better uh, looking, braver, but not as smart as me. <laughs> yes. That, that's Mo. Um, Mo is a uh, Jewish uniformed cop for the New York City Police Department during an era when New York City was going bankrupt in the mid-70s. And he never realized how much he loved the job until he gets injured on the job, but not doing anything heroic. He slipped on a piece of carbon paper on a freshly waxed floor and ruined his knee uh, and gets put out to pasture. And his one accomplishment as a uniformed cop was finding a kidnapped little girl in a water tower in Coney Island. And at most other times in the city's history, he would have been made detective for accomplishing that. But because of the city's problems, financial problems, he never made detective. And he's driven as a private investigator uh, by the fact that he's never he never made detective. And now only after he's off the job does he realize how much he really wanted it. And it's often waved out in front of him as bait to uh, look the other way at cases that involve police, police corruption, and he just can't do it. And one of the things about Mo that's really interesting is I age him through the course of nine books. So one of the th aspects I never liked about kind of the old-fashioned PIs, although I love the books, I hated the trope or the conceit that the detective never got older. You know, one person would finish the case and walk out of his office, and then the next person would walk in, and there would be his next case. So Mo ages from his uh, early 30s until 65 over the course of the nine books. And I don't know if your listeners watch uh, Turner Classic Movies, but I once did a panel with Eddie Muller, who does Noir Alley, and I said, Eddie, you know, my books aren't classically noir. And what he said about the Mo books, I will never forget. He said, Reed, your Mo books are as noir as it gets because in them, the truth always makes things worse. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, that whole aging thing, you see the opposite more often than that. I mean, obviously, uh, Block ages Scudder. I think he does that very successfully. But but you're right. Most of the series you see, they can have six, seven, eight books, and they all must happen within like a 14-month period or something because there's no aging that happens. Yeah, I, I think in Sue Grafton's books, Kelsey, I think Kelsey's her protagonist name. Kinsey. Kenzie, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm going to get shot now. Uh, Ken, <laughs> cut that out. Delete that. Ken, Ken, Kenzie Malone, right? You know, did I get Malone wrong? Uh, uh, Kenzie see. Milhong is her name. Oh, see, I'm de I'm dead man now. Uh, <laughs> I think that all 25 of the books happen within a few years. Mm -hmm. So she does age the character, but not and not precipitously. There's no stages of life changes. There's right. Just in, mother, Mo, you know. with Mo, in, in the Mo books, there are times when Mo has cancer. Uh, Mo has disputes with his daughter. Mo is married happily and then married, and then is divorced. 
he's married again. You know, so there's there is a whole series of how our lives progress. Uh, Mo's life progresses, and he gets older. And by the the last book, I like to say, the only thing Mo can flash with any credibility is his ARP card. <laughs> And he's got nine out of ten punches on it, so he's about ready to get something for free. Yeah, yeah, he gets he gets the early bird special uh, <laughs> by the last book. So uh, the the series starts in what year? Nineteen seventy seven. And what year was that published? Uh, nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. The first one. So, so really, you're writing historical fiction from the very beginning with with Mo. Yes, I like to think of it as hysterical fiction, but <laughs> no, which is there's humor in the books, but it's they're not, you know, they're dark. Yeah, in in a way, I love it because it's an era I grew up in, but more as an observer of it than a liver of it. It's like I, mm -hmm. the early Mo books. Mo is my oldest brother's age, so his development. I watched those the early years, watched it more than lived it. So it was an interesting thing to do. I, I, I really loved being the observer. And, of course, there are parts of the time I lived through, like the mid-'70s in New York City was a really kind of fascinating time. So having lived through it, you weren't strapped with a whole lot of research requirements, just maybe double-checking things here and there. What year did that come out? Well, yeah. That sort of stuff. yeah, there's a reason I, call, I write fiction. <laughs> you know, I, I do do research, absolutely do research, but uh, I don't enjoy research. And, and, and when I get when I'm doing something that late weight uh, weighs me down with research, then I'm not going to enjoy the project very much. So I, I try to stay far away from it. That's interesting. Uh, some of the writers I talk to, the research is their favorite part to each their own, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's no one way to do this. Like, I I hate outlining, so I don't outline. And I know people, you know, Stephen King says outlining <laughs> is the last resort of mediocre writers. And then I know Jeffrey Deaver, and Jeff Deaver can't, you know, cook dinner without an outline. So, and, and both are obviously highly successful. I, I would contend that what works for you is what works. I mean, that's what's right. If, right. You know, I mean, uh, somebody saying, you know, if you outline, you're boring, or if you don't outline, you're unstructured or whatever. Uh, it's And I'm it's, both boring you know. and unstructured. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it, there's this particular, it's a little bit arrogant, isn't it, to tell somebody else how their creative process can be the most effective. It, I taught writing at Hofstra University for a few years, and I've taught I was one of the founding men, members of Mystery Writers of America University. And one thing that I, I try to stress when I teach is there isn't only one way to do it. And anybody who tells you this is the only way to do it is somebody you maybe shouldn't listen to. Totally agree. So we've been talking a lot about what you have written, and there's a ton of it. But uh, what's, what's coming up next? What's next on the agenda? Well, I'm no longer doing the Jesse Stone novels, um, and and I, like I said before, I really appreciate that the opportunity to do them uh, got me on the bestseller list. Uh, and but I've moved on. I'm now writing a new character for Blackstone Publishing, who's a New York City detective, but with a unique brief. 
And the first novel is called Sleepless City. And I believe it will be out sometime in the first half of 2021. But, you know, the pandemic has kind of screwed up so much in publishing uh, that I can't, I don't know what the release date will be because, you know, publishers are pushing back release dates like crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's an uncertain world in every every way. That's funny that uh, you bring that up. I initially was just going to start the interview by asking you how you were handling all of this uh, quarantine and, and COVID-19 and all of that. Of course, I went straight into the conference thing instead. You know, in New York, it's an interesting thing. It's scary and it's interesting. I lived through 9-11. I lived through the 77 uh, riots and blackouts. It's, it's um, you know, you just have to do We've been good at social distancing. I'm kind of trapped in the house, mostly with my wife uh, and my son. Uh, my my wife is the um, director of occupational therapy for a school system that treats autistic and physically and learning disabled children. So she does treatments via Zoom and is the um, uh, supervisor for 21 occupational therapists. So she's working harder now than she works at schools. My son is studying art, but Wood is now doing it almost exclusively online, and I'm studying Netflix. Hey, uh, well, I already have my undergraduate degree in uh, Netflix. I'm working on my <laughs> master's. So where, where, where are you at in your program? You soon. Oh, you're still behind. <laughs> still, still in your junior year there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, uh, there are very few silver linings in, in the events uh, that we've been dealing with these last six months or so. And I think that online streamers are probably one of those yeah. <laughs> silver linings. So the new book is Sleepless City. You think that's going to stick as a title for sure? Yes, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Mid-2021 from Blackstone Publishing. That'll be your next new work that comes out, uh, that, absent that, short stories? Uh, I have, I mean, I have some short stories coming out, but in terms of uh, novels, that's the next thing out. Well, that's a long time to wait, but uh, as I mentioned before, I'm in a good position where that's concerned because I've got about 30 read. Farrell Coleman books to to wade through. So I'm going to start with Tower just because I, I like Ken Bruin so much. But if someone were like me and had just discovered you, uh, where would you tell them to start? I, I, I would give them the option of either starting with Walking the Perfect Square, which is the first uh, Mo Prager novel. Uh, and that's the one that's the origin story. I'd said in 1977 in uh, New York City. Or... Uh, Where It Hurts, which is the first Gus Murphy novel. I think you'll get a pretty good idea of who I am as a writer and what I believe as a writer uh, if you read either or both of those novels. All right. Well, that's where I'll start then after Tower. Right. Um, well, I, you know, I'm really glad I got to get you on the show, uh, Reed. Uh, like, like you mentioned early on, it's one of those things where you, you know who somebody is for a long time, but you don't get a chance to actually meet them. And I was glad to have a short conversation with you down in uh, in Dallas, but this has been a real a real nice time. Well, Frank, thanks a lot. I, I'm honored that you asked me to be here, and it's been, it's been great. And I hope you when you put this up, I get a link to it because I know a lot of people would like to hear our talk. 
Uh, absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link and I'll tag you and all that. You can do the retreat, cross post, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, it's, it sounds like a football play. <laughs> yeah, just run the post pattern, man. I'll hit you in stride. <laughs> well, Frank, thanks a lot. And this is a, I do a lot of interviews, and this was really lots of fun. All right, folks, there you go. You can see why that conversation went on as long as it did. Uh, Reed is just a, a really interesting person to, to talk to and to listen to. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor, and uh, I had a great time talking to him, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, running into him again. Uh, on our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Barbara Nicholas, who writes a series that features a railroad cop. So a little something different there. Barbara, once again, a person that I met at a writing conference for the first time, uh, and I really enjoyed that conversation with her. Uh, that'll be next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime. A quick Frank Zafiro update for you. In about a week, episode 12 of A Grifter Song, the finale to season two, Down Comes the Night, will be released. Uh, of course, you can always pick that up uh, all by itself, uh, or you can subscribe to the entire season, which I hope you do, because it has wonderful stories from Eric Pruitt, from Awesome Maria Bradley, Holly West, Eric Beatner, and Scott Eubanks. Down Comes the Night is, as I mentioned, the finale. Uh, but if you subscribe, you also get a bonus episode. Uh, this one is called The Reckoner, and it uh, kind of covers events that take place over the entirety of the, the season uh, from a different perspective. And you learn that some things aren't exactly like you thought they were. So it pays to be a subscriber in this regard. Uh, you can get uh, Down Comes the Night or a subscription to uh, either season one or season two of A Grifter Song from Down Out Books or link to it from my website at franksafiro.com. All right. I want to say thanks to Reed for coming on the show and for enduring through uh, some difficulties. I had some yard people show up to do their some maintenance here at the house. And so you may have heard some uh, howling in the background at times throughout that uh, particular interview. Uh, he was very gracious about it. And uh, and like I said, I enjoyed my interview with him. So thank you, Reed, for coming on the show. Thanks, Down Out Books, for being a great sponsor, as always. Uh, and most importantly, thank you, the listener, uh, for being here. We're coming up on the end of the season here. Just uh, three more episodes, and season three will be in the books. And I really appreciate every step that you've taken along the way with me, whether that's one episode or every episode or anywhere in between. Uh, you're the reason why I do this. Uh, and I hope it, that uh, in the times that we're in, that maybe these shows uh, give you just a little bit of uh, reprieve from what's going on. All right, Barbara Nicholas, next time. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs> <laughs>